Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. All right, let's, we're off. <laughs> Sorry about that bumpy start to the show, guys, but uh, seems like someone has got a bit too big for their britches. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a phrase. <laughs> nah, anyway, um, how are you doing? I'm all right, actually, yeah. I'm all right, yeah. How are you? Welcome to- I'm fine. Welcome, uh, welcome to another uh, good. Uh, welcome to another <laughs> fuck me. <laughs> welcome to another uh, fun-sized family. What is it? <laughs> Five-star fun-sized family. No fun-sized. F- no. Five-star Five star. fun-sized fan club. Yes. Just to let, I. I mean, I obviously know how to say all that, guys. Um. But uh, I'm just letting you know at home that when you struggle, you know, uh, it's uh, it's something that we all have to go through at some point. So just um, when you're trying to tell your th- friends about fan club and you yeah. can't get the, the phrasing out, you know, just remember that you're not alone. You know, you just, right. just, re- just remember when you care, when you care so much about fan club and you're telling your friends about it. And you struggle to get the words out. Just remember that you're more professional than the people that do it. <laughs> so I'm sorry to lump you in with that, Nat. But um, it's true. So um, <laughs> um, it's uh, Friday. It's midday. The weekend starts here, as Pat Sharp used to say, <laughs> um, uh, which was uh, which was true, right? Fun, fun house was on a th- on a Friday, right? Yeah, and you know what? I think it did feel like the weekend was starting. I think he was. He I think he nailed it. Here. Yeah, I think he's right. Yeah, I think when Funhouse was on, I did feel a bit like it's the weekend. Yeah, the opening credits to Funhouse of Pat Sharp hauling himself out of the uh, pub garden, <laughs> uh, fag in hand, <laughs> twins flanked by the twins either side of him, uh, making his way down to the go kart emporium and saying, "Oh." Well, I started the weekend at lunch, but uh, let's go. Let's go for <laughs> it. That was that was obviously fan-sized. That's fun-sized family, fun-sized five-star fun house. Fun but, house, um, yeah, different show. What is this today? Let's start properly. Right, good evening. Today is Friday. <laughs> I'm doing that thing where I'm sort of start, slightly distracted in my head, so I'm not listening to the words that are coming out of my mouth because <laughs> oh, I'm thinking about something else while I'm talking, filling up content. Um, uh, I live I'm, in the moment. I would, I would hand it over to you. <laughs> but but um, um, I don't think you're quite ready to do what I do yet. Um, not quite ready for the big time. Maybe in a, maybe in another three years. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's good. So, how have uh, have you been? How have you been this week? I've been I've been all right. Yeah, I've been all right. I feel quite busy. Um, although when I looked at it, I thought I was quite busy all week, but I have seen a lot more films than last week when I was looking at my list, and I was going, "Oh well, I found some time to do some uh, background stuff for the show." Of course, um, I pretend I watch films as research for the show. For the show. Yeah. yeah. So that's it becomes what, a thing what... now that I can justify it with going, well, you need I to did. have something to talk about, don't we? And 
on fan club. See, so I watch I watch I watch YouTube all week, and I'm like, yeah, 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 so that I can keep abreast of the uh, <laughs> the fan of, of the of what people are into. You know, um, what it does is it makes me realise that we are moderate fans. <laughs> Because yeah, people that people don't really, 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 they don't just care about stuff. They care about stuff to the point that they destroy the stuff that they care about. Yeah, and you know what? As well, I think when when that seems to happen, I think it basically destroys any interest I have in that thing as well. I think yeah. it really erodes. So I'm just like, I'll just watch what I like. That's not that. It almost like yeah. makes me leave that at the door. Like, do you know what? Have it then. I'll watch something else. Don't don't like what I like anymore. Sure, maybe, maybe a little bit, but it just makes me feel like I just always I I always think that if we like, I don't think fans. I think fans should be able to say like if you watch a soap opera and it's a long running soap opera, and you really like a character, um, and the character is going to get killed off, and I think if there's an outcry by the fans, they say, oh don't kill them off. You know, I think that maybe the people that running the show can kind of renegotiate a contract or or kind of like go, well, all right, we were thinking about killing off that character, but maybe not. And maybe sometimes if there's a character that you love to hate that's so like, despicable and then they're going to kill him off and you go, oh, but we really hated that character. So then maybe a season later they bring them back and I think mm. that's all fine. But when people are having an impact on a story that is as yet untold, before mm. they even know whether they're right or not, they've got all of this input. And it's kind of like, um, I, and I can talk about something very specifically that's happened within the last week, if not fortnight. Um, but I just, I, yeah, if we all had like an input into what happened in Back to the Future 2, and we were like, oh no, it's got to be like this. And then, you know, all of those films that people, um, all of those films that we grew up with that paved the way for perpetual childhoods uh, where no one ever has to grow up, you know. Um, I, I'm just thinking about all these 45-year-olds that are kicking off about Masters of the Universe at the moment. And <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking, aren't you watching it with your fucking kids? Yeah. You should, yeah. All, have, you should all have, A, better things to be worrying about, and B, kids. <laughs> <laughs> and watching TV with... You shouldn't care about Masters of the Universe, but maybe because you loved Masters of the Universe growing up, you should be kind of like introducing it to your children and like going, I grew up with this. And yeah, it's going to be politically or, um, you know, it's going to be different from... It's going to be different from what it was when you were growing up, but I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, so I'd like to talk about Masters of the Universe because I think what's happened with that is really interesting. Okay, well, you'll have to fill me in because I saw, I noticed something. I noticed that it, one, it was on Netflix and pretty much went, nah. Two, then I noticed people seeing a headline of people saying they're upset about it, but I didn't know yeah. what, why they're upset about it. And then I didn't, I wasn't bothered to read it. But to me, yeah. He Man's one of those things that, like, it, like, if you've ever tried to revisit any of that stuff, it really is two dimensional, you know. It really is like, uh, like it's like you know when he's there, um, you know, it is about a bloke who turns out into a strong bloke who looks the same with a tan well, it's and about a vest. It's about a strong bloke that turns into an, a, another strong bloke, the, mm. the exact the exact same strong bloke. <laughs> it's a, 
when he it's about this big muscly guy who goes by the power of Grayskull and uh what Grayskull seems to do is just change his outfit. <laughs> it doesn't do do you know what I mean? That's what so I've got quite a I've got an inch I've got a complicated history with Master of the Universe and He-Man. Um but um how's how best to how best to do what I what I'm not into at the moment is um uh, properties being taken over by um, uh, hmm, people that don't have maybe necessarily the properties interests at heart. And I think that um, uh, it's very difficult to talk about really, I suppose, because um, it's a fucking minefield if you talk about uh, any of that. But like, um, I think that there should be diversity and I think there should be stuff out there for everyone um but i also think that if you are basing something on a fan base for instance james bond which hasn't been the latest james bond hasn't been released yet and phoebe waller bridge has kind of written it and people are all up in arms you know i don't give a fuck about james bond i've said this numerous times on the show i don't care about james bond but what i would say is if you've got a franchise that is pushing 60 years old um then to suddenly change what the fan base likes about it, then who are you doing it for? Because the fan base aren't going to suddenly start, um, you know, if you, burn, if you burn the bridges with your fan base and don't deliver what they're interested in and what they've been coming back all this time for, then, uh, then why would they come back? And then if you've got a 60-year-old franchise, who are you automatically going to fill the seats with you know you you've done you've spent 60 years developing a franchise and now all of a sudden you're saying we're actually going to cater for a completely different audience well why would that audience come and see a franchise that's already established itself Mm. 60 years for not being particularly inclusive i think james bond has had a history of being racist and misogynistic um and sexist and all this other stuff right um and that's part of why some people go and see it i don't think it's been i think daniel craig has done a lot with it i i think his films have been slightly more watchable than others i always really enjoyed growing up watching roger moore um i don't really give a fuck about james bond but i but i do sort of like appreciate the fact that there are people that really love it um but also james bond as a franchise because it is so old does have a history of changing with the times with every kind of installment that they've, mm. they've made but the stuff, um, you know, um, I think there was the identity politics argument that was brought into Star Wars where people like say, well, now we've got a female lead. And I think the argument was there was always a female lead in Star Wars from the 70s, you know. Um, and I think Star Wars always tried to do, uh, to always tried to be as diverse as it could be. Uh, when you look at what else was going on in, you know, from 1970s, what else was going on in the culture? It may be not, it maybe it wasn't pushing the boundaries that far, but it was actually kind of like doing something. And what I think they made the entire first Star Wars film and realised when they finished it that there weren't any black people in it. And so they were like, well, who can we get to be Darth Vader, who's the most famous black actor that we can get to do? So they got James L. Jones. And then in the sequel, they rectified that and they brought Lando in as kind of like this character. Mm. Um, and so I think that I think that 
I mean, when they when the new Star Wars sequel trilogy came along, um, they brought in John Boyega and Daisy Ridley, and they were like, going, hey, see, and and then they uh, Oscar Isaac as well, and with Last Jedi, they were kind of like. Oscar Isaac is a hot-headed fanboy that's told by Laura Dern to sort of like wind his, wind his neck in. And uh, John Boyega didn't really have anything to do. So there was a bit, a lot of hype about the fact that they had, out of the main three uh, cast members, one of them was black. But then I think John Boyega has gone on record to say that he was really disappointed with the character arc that his character went in because it was all mainly for show. And they didn't really, Disney didn't really back up that with a decent character or a storyline for that character. And then with Daisy Ridley, she's the lead. I don't think anyone at all had a problem with the fact that there was a female lead. Uh, but the press kind of like took that and made it into, it's mm. about identity politics, where in actual fact it was more to do with the fact that they didn't plan a trilogy when they started. And it was a trilogy that is, you know, they were like saying, well, we want to make it more accessible to people. And you go, Star Wars is the most successful franchise. How much more successful do you want it to be? It's kind mm. of absolutely put a female lead in and and, and put... Um, uh, a diverse cast of actors in there and you know but you've got to have a story to to you got you can't just base it all on diversity you've got to have a story in yeah. there that people respond to and then it gets murky because there are racists out there and there are misogynists out there um and every every you know ironically everyone gets like forced into oh well, you're you're either with us or against us and it's kind of it's more complicated than that you know um uh, I know I really loved things about The Last Jedi, uh, even though I hated the film in total. I really loved things about The Last Jedi that other people seem to really hate. And my issues with The Last Jedi turned out to be different from what other people thought. But there is a, there's a thing at the moment, I know people are really worried about Indiana Jones um, and um, they've done stuff with Batman uh, um, the other thing with the Batwoman TV series seems to be that uh, they've gone right. We've got um, we, it's not a Batman TV series; it's Batwoman. Batwoman comes here, and she's going to uh, take over the mantle of the Bat, um, and that's great. But they seem to have just sort of like inserted a, a woman into uh, Bruce Wayne's costume, and she said, "Well, I'll make this into it." It's kind of like. You, what you've done there is you've taken, you've given, um, you've taken all of uh, something that a male character has achieved and you've gifted it to a female character. Whereas what would have been better is making that female character build up her own uh, career rather than actually just sort of like take it from another character. Because what's the point in that? That's just lip service in the end. It doesn't actually prove to be... It's not a positive role model. Well, with Batwoman, I think, is a probably different example because that's a character, again, who has been in the comics, I think, since the 40s, I think, and was initially meant to be Bruce Wayne's wife at a time when everything was much more kind of family values-y. Um, but then... Um, but actually, as, as that kind of series went on, they always thought it was better that Bruce Wayne's more of a, like a playboy... And so they mm. kind of then put him up with lots of other kind of he's he's got loads of girlfriends. So that character's kind of been around. But specifically with the TV series, mm -hmm. um, she finds Batman's Batcave, 
with all of his oh, gadgets. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. Haven't and then she, she, she inherits Alfred. Right. And then she gets a bat suit and she says, do you know what will make this better? When it, when it fits a woman. And you go, sure. But that is all of Bruce Wayne stuff. Yeah. I also suspect like, with a series like that, they probably would have gone, can we do a Batman TV series? And they go, no. And someone goes, Batwoman? They go, sure. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And they've made it, and, almost have made it more into a Batman. Like they're using yeah. all the Batman supporting cast then to make a, a Batwoman series. And I don't think this is really, it's not really about, it's not really about real life diversity. I think it's about, um, it's about, uh, corporate corporate diversity. Oh, absolutely. Where, yes. Where they've where they've where they've gone. Oh, well, we'll do a Batwoman TV series. But in actual fact, that's a great idea. Mm. You know. But why would you why would you set it up that she's basically turned up out of nowhere while Bruce Wayne is away and nicked all of his stuff? <laughs> how, how does that make a strong character? It's kind of like it's 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 silly. So they so there's so there's all this sort of stuff, and so so. So with Masters of the Universe, all of these, uh, I mean, so Masters of the Universe was a, he, it was called He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. And from what I, there's various reasons and there's the toys who made us. Um, I think there should be stuff out there for absolutely everyone. Mm. <laughs> Just clarifying, right? And there should be stuff that we can all enjoy together, right? Uh, and if, if, you're watching something like James Bond and it is uh, not inclusive and it makes people feel like it's it's not for them, then you should do something about that to kind of like make it into um, uh, entertainment for everyone, right? But I don't think that you should be introducing characters at the expense of uh, pre-existing characters. You should be fighting, you know, I don't think that you find strength in whatever new character you bring by cutting down the strength of a pre-existing character you don't my friend pat always said to me you don't he said he drew two lines our friend pat he drew two lines on a piece of paper right and he gave me one line and he had the other line and he said how do you, and they were the same length and he said how do you make your line longer than my line and i said i don't know and he said well what you can do is you can take my line and you can tear it in half and i was like right he said, or you can just draw your line longer. And I think that the way that the way that you uh, achieve stuff and the way that you kind of like enrich your own life is by not by tearing down other people, but by kind of like trying to make your life as full and interesting as you can. And I think that goes uh, hand in hand with how to develop strong characters. Hmm. Um Anyway, so when I grew up watching He-Man Master of the Universe, from what I've, there's a toys that made it about it, um, which is on Netflix, which is quite interesting. But I'm, I, the story I always heard was that they made a bunch of Conan the Barbarian action figures, and yeah. then the film turned out to be R-rated, which was like a 15 or an 18 over here. It was really bloody and violent, and there were beheadings and stuff like that. And they were like, oh, well, we can't market these for kids anymore. So... Um, what do we do and they were just like well what we'll do rather than make them conan and if you remember the film conan james l jones is in conan um and he has uh loads of snakes oh. he, i think he turns into a big um 
uh, boa constrictor at yes. one point, right? And so they went, right, well, we'll take all of these figures that we've made and then we'll just stick new heads on them, right? And so they didn't have to, that's why all of the He-Man figures have the same body, but different colors. So Skeletor is a skeleton with the body of a muscle man. <laughs> <laughs> who, who's, he's a skeleton, but he's muscly, right? He's yeah. a muscly skeleton. And he also has like a loincloth, right? Yeah. But he's got the exact, if you took his head off, he's got the same, <laughs> he's got the same exact body as He-Man, right? Yeah. So... Then they were like, how do we shift all these toys? Now, I think that that's been debunked, that version, and that it was an original toy line. But I, I, deep in my heart, I think that's bullshit. Why would you invent a skeleton bad guy that had the body of Arnold Schwarzenegger? Yes. It yeah, I've always, I, I mean, I always heard that to be true, and it, and that as an urban legend makes sense that that is what happened. It's certainly about that. I mean, the type, if it's not, it wasn't the Conan thing to begin with. I reckon it was a toy manufacturer who uh, had seen the trailer for Conan and went, yeah, let's get hold of that. And then whoever owned Conan said, you can't have it. And they went, right, we'll just do our own one then. Like, I think it's definitely got something to do with Conan and that kind of whole ma- sword and sorcery thing. Because sword and sor- it is sword and sorcery, but it's also science fiction. So mm. there's uh, they have laser guns and it yes. kind of, uh, and, and they have flying cars and stuff like that. And so... Like Master of the Universe is a really weird property where you just feel like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it is sort of like got a barbarian in it, and there, but also, I think that if from the ground up, from the starting point, you were coming up with a science fiction kids TV series, you wouldn't start with drawing a barbarian, hmm. you know. Um, so, which is why Prince Adam has the same body as He Man in the, you know, and um. Yeah, so I just think that it's really suspect to think that, oh, this was all planned. It's kind of like they've been building, the, they built the law as it went and they had all of these toys to shift. So they made a Saturday morning TV advert, mm-hmm. which was for kids animated, but it was an advert for the toys. Mm. And then they would just every season, they would add more and more characters, more and more toys on the shelves. I loved those toys. I found like the combination of, and I, so... He-Man ran between 1983 and 1986. And I I used to collect as many as I could. Um, Couldn't ever afford the action sets or anything like that. Uh, So my dad actually um, made me a Castle Grayskull um, out of kind of um, sort of... um, almost like recycling so the, the turrets were giant yogurt pots and <laughs> uh there's all this like polystyrene packaging and uh, cardboard tubes and all this other stuff and then he built it all on um this large wooden board and he covered it in um sort of canvas and he painted it and it was really robust and there were like turrets for characters to stand in, and they were like hidey hole. You know, he it was better than the actual action set that you got, which was mm. quite flimsy. It was like this huge thing, and I could keep all my characters in there. And it was a playset; it had a portcullis. It was like, yeah, my dad made that. And then I think maybe when Christmas came along, he made a snake mountain for me. And I remember the nose for the snake. And and again, it was sort of like he, he used sort of like. Um, you know, household rubbish, 
and he made it really robust and the nose on the snake was one of those um ice creams that you got with a with a bubble gum in the bottom i know yeah what, yeah yeah what were they called the cones ones. i know exactly a plastic cone a screwball was screwball. it a screwball yeah um, so there was those was that and there were these tubes on them where you put like uh, marbles in and you could attack other players. I had He-Man, my sister had She-Ra, right? Mm -hmm. So she collected all the She-Ra stuff and I collected all the He-Man stuff. And then we'd have kind of like, um, you know, on Saturday mornings, we'd empty all of our toys on the uh, in the uh, living room and we'd play He-Man and She-Ra, right? Um, uh, I used to like the cartoons a bit. There was always a moral at the end of the cartoons that told you not to like play on train tracks. Yeah, <laughs> or run weird. with scissors. Weird, weird that he, yeah, and weird that He-Man knew so much about what kids were up to on planet Earth. And then, um, and then I didn't really think about it. And then the film came out, and I remember going to see the film that Dolph Lundgren was in, and uh, being really confused by it because it was so far removed from the um, TV series and the cartoon and the toy line. I couldn't understand why Dolph Lundgren talked like that. And, you know, I just thought, like, I found, like, the whole thing really bizarre and weird. And there's the guy from Back to the Future was in it. And, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> and so there was all of that. And then I don't think I ever thought about it. I didn't, I, I, it was like one of the, oh, yeah, and then in Ghostbusters 2, which came out in 1989. So the cartoon finished in 86. The film came out in 87. And in 89, Ghostbusters 2 came out. And there's a scene at the beginning where the Ghostbusters are at a um, birthday party. Uh, Ray and Winston are at a birthday party. And all the kids, they sing the Ghostbusters theme tune, which exists within the world of... Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. Um, and then all the kids shout, He-Man, He-Man. He and even as a nine-year-old... Or even an eight-year-old, whenever Ghostbusters 2 came out, I was there going, He-Man? That is so old news. Why are the kids into He-Man? Has he got, you know? And they tried to relaunch He-Man a few times over the years, uh -huh. like in the late 90s, mid-2000s. And they've been trying to make a film for about 20 years. John yeah. Woo was attached. I think McGee was attached. It's this property that's very difficult to, to deal with. Um and they've done and, um, like yeah relaunches, haven't they? Like like those toys have happened every yeah. other year. There's there's a relaunch, trying to relaunch the toys and things again. I think the thing that's really cool about He Man is the iconography, uh, and and even like the landscapes and um, uh, those really detailed paintings. Uh, who did the paintings? Is it Frank? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. Frank. Hmm. Not they like really, yeah. Did Is he do He-Man? He did a lot of the Conan stuff, but I don't know if he, he did, did Conan that. stuff. And then the Frank, and then I think, um, yeah, I think, I think the artwork for He-Man is based on his artwork. Oh yeah, Conan. I bet it is based on it. Yeah. And it's beautiful. It's really detailed and it's great and it's cool and it really like sparks off your imagination. But it sparks off your imagination more than perhaps the cartoon series did. That's which... always what I believe has happened with it, though. I think it's like. Like we are talking the other week about Richard Donner Superman in that Richard Donner Superman really establishes what the sort of mythology of Superman is that never really, they never really got to grips with in the comic. And since then, you kind of understand it all. Whereas I think He-Man's a property that if you were going to reboot it now, what you'd want to do first is just establish a proper world for it there's no real world building it doesn't really make sense it's all a bit 
it all feels very two-dimensional like he's a goodie he lives in this place he's a baddie he lives in this place but it doesn't feel like there's any kind of mythology around he-man that you can it buy sounds, into no it sounds and, and i think that's because they made it up on the spot they had a exactly. bunch of toys and they were like how are we going to sell these toys and they made up the mythology as they went mm. and then they were like well we've got this toy stinks so we'll call him stinker mm. yeah right and and we got moss for this one. We got we make this one look all furry, so we call him Moss Man, you know. And it was literally just like, what can we do with this fucking? This toy's neck expands, so we call him Mechanic, like mechanic, you know. Oh right, do you know what I mean? It's just kind of it's real basic stuff, hmm. um, uh, and it's very dismissive to say, oh, it's just a toy line. Uh, it's just a toy commercial. That's what the cartoon series was. It was a toy commercial. It worked really well. And do you know what? It was a great jumping off point for kids to play with these toys and to create their own adventures mm. and their own mythology and their own storylines. And I fucking loved He-Man, barely thought about it in all my years since, <laughs> right? And then all of a sudden, this new Masters of the Universe series has come out on... Um, on Netflix, uh, On Netflix, uh, Masters of the Universe. It's, no, it's not called He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. It's called Masters of the Universe Revelations. And it's got uh, Kevin Smith behind it. And, you know, uh, you've got a lot of angry fanboys who are angry about the state of Star Wars. And they're angry about the state of Batman. And they're angry about uh, Indiana Jones and James Bond and all of these franchises. And um, they've, they've got all their hearts pinned on this Masters of the Universe thing that's coming out. <laughs> and, you know... Um, some spoilers coming out um, for Masters of Europe. Maybe this is a good time to go for a song and then we'll talk about the actual... Okay. I'll tell you about the series. So after the song, there'll be spoilers. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're back! We're back! We're back. It's Friday. It's half past 12. We're pre-recorded on a Wednesday, obviously, at three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, but yeah, there you go. We we're talking about, and by we, I mean, I am lecturing Nathaniel about that. I'm kind of keen, though, because it wasn't something. Do you know what I mean? It was like I was interested in it, sort of. I went, ah, a new Mars Universe. But then also a bit of my brain went, no, don't watch that. What, don't I wasn't remotely. That. I wasn't remotely interested in it, and I'm not saying I'm better than. I loved it no. so much as a kid, and those playsets that my dad made me, I absolutely cherish. And um, and I loved the action figures. I loved the iconography. I thought it was great. And as a little kid, I was I was a kid. I mean, I was happy when I was in London and I was into He-Man, and then as soon as. Uh, He-Man finished, I moved to St Albans and then I was bullied. So maybe if I'd have had... But then I went into real Ghostbusters and... Yeah, uh, I mean, you moved on with whatever was new, I think I did. And also, also sort of like Thundercats came along and sort of learnt from uh, Master of the Universe where they started with all of this kind of backstory and iconography. Exactly, which I think and had a much kind of richer like, backstory, yeah. And I think sort of thunder, and I wasn't into Thundercats, but but Thundercats was a ripoff. It was kind of mm. like he has a sword, he says a magic word, he turns into a superhero, and the main bad guy is a decrepit mummy, not a skeleton yeah. this time. With, and it's kind of like yeah, that's what you do. Um, so, yeah, so I think that maybe Thundercats learned a lot from He Man and, but the other thing about He Man was at the time was they were like this isn't. 
this is a, this is an action line for little boys, right? Mm. We've got barbarians and laser guns and flying horses and stuff. And for the little girls in the eighties, they had My Little Pony and Barbie mm. and Cindy. And boys had Transformers and He-Man. That's how it all got divvied up. But I think even with He-Man, they were like, well, it's a bit boy-centric. So then they created She-Ra, which was mm -hmm. He-Man's twin sister. And it was a, it was a parallel uh, cartoon series with crossover adventures every so often. And it kind of like, it brought girls into it. And I know my sister really liked She-Ra. Um, and I like She-Ra and I like mm. He-Man. Um, and uh, my mate was into G.I. Joe or Action Force, it was called, and I hated that. Wasn't into that at all. Um, but I don't really have much nostalgia for He-Man. Um, and when they, when it was like, oh, they're making another He-Man thing, I was interested because it's like, they've been trying to make that. I think even like two or three years ago, they'd cast a guy as He-Man and they were ready to make a movie and then it fell through I remember the last that, yeah. And that was going to be like, he was quite... Uh, um wasn't he like more of a kind of weedy looking guy and they were gonna beat him up somehow or something i think even he had like dark hair as well and it was and right. people were like kicking off about the fact that he had dark hair like people kicked off about the fact that daniel craig was blonde so yeah. you know and and uh, most of the universe fan base is different from the james bond fan base is different from that and not everyone is the same and i think i think you can you know if there was a good james bond film and it was as good as a film hmm just any good film <laughs> i would be all in and i'd be going i love that you know but if it's just another entry in a long ongoing franchise you know i, I mean i don't want to watch all the fast and the furious just to get to fast five because that's meant to be a genuinely good film i mm. don't even know if i'd start there but that is one of the things the fact that five films into the franchise there is a film that's worth watching yeah. is the thing that's making me teeter on should i bother watching fast and furious one two three and four yeah i'm like that with exactly with that series and i think with sequels they almost have to be for me something i invested something in originally like if i saw the first one and loved it i probably would have seen the second one and it'd have to it's almost like that so it's, it's a domino effect for me the idea that there's now eight of them i'm like i don't care i did i saw the first one didn't like it but i and but also um i like goldeneye mm -hmm. but i thought the rest of the pierce brosnan films were rubbish and i didn't really see them at the cinema mm. and maybe i saw a couple of them at cinema but then you know and i liked casino royale but i thought quantum solace was terrible I, uh, and then what was it skyfall after that mm. which again was like oh this is good but i was in there because i like the song <laughs> and then and i remember the chris cornell song from casino royale more than the, the actual film and then i didn't bother going to see spectre at the cinema at all it's sort of like past past i saw posters everywhere but there was nothing that made me want to i don't know i've just got I, yeah I, it's kind of like it has to be I'm not just going to turn up just because you've done so, you know, done another one. Yeah. It's kind of, I still want. And I think that's I the problem with a lot of them is that you just, if I see a James Bond film, I usually go, yeah, it was all right. It was all right. And I tried to watch the early sort of 60s ones, and I do like that because I like there's there's like a, I like those sort of spy films that are those kind of Cold War era, quite silly spy yeah. movies. Yeah, but I but I prefer if you're going back that era, I prefer the Man from Uncle and Me too. Uh, and the Invisible Man that had what's his face in it? McCallum, David McCallum. Yeah, and uh, the Prisoner. 
No, which, I do. That's much more my bag. All that stuff. The, than James the prisoner Bond is, is fu- the prisoner is fucking incredible, and James Bond is sort of like, yeah, 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 yeah. Hmm. Fine. Oh, he's I think that's almost where James Bond makes much more sense in the sixties. You go, sure, it, it kind of makes sense that this is happening. Yeah. Whereas, whereas, like the it's... longer they go on, the more you're kind of going, who is this bloke? Why is he there? What's he doing it for? Why are you making James Bond films still? You know, it's like whenever they were filming on the Thames and the Sun would always write an article about it and you'd kind of like go, isn't this sort of like fairly small scale in a world where true lies exist? Yeah. yeah. How are you going to do a James Bond film? How are you going to do a mid-90s James Bond film to, um, uh, you know, to, uh, what's the word? To compete, compete with... To compete with Arnold Schwarzenegger, what's the point? And then also when you get later on, it's kind of like, what, you're making James Bond like the Bourne Identity films? Yeah. Okay. Um, or, you know, Mission Impossible. We watched uh, Mission Impossible the other day, the original Mission Impossible, Brian De Palma. Oh, my God. It's, I mean, there's, it's great. Why would you make a James Bond film in a world where there's now Mission Impossible? Mm. It just feels like, it feels like, They've got to do so much heavy lifting to just. Yeah. And I think I think basically, yeah. There's more. There's more to that stuff that, than James Bond, and in, including Guy Ritchie's Man from Uncle. I enjoyed more. Which was than great. Contemporary, yeah, I enjoyed more than contemporary James Bond films again. And it's just like, right, someone's come along and done an update of uh, Man from Uncle, and that's better than the James Bond films. <laughs> Someone's done an update of The Man From U.N.C.L.E. and that stars an alleged cannibal. So, <laughs> and, and still was better. better. Than, and still I enjoyed it more. <laughs> um, I thought Man From U.N.C.L.E. was, uh, was very good. Anyway, so, so, um, so right, so in, in the 80s they were like, right, okay, uh, we need to do something for the girls as well. So they invented She-Ra, brilliant. And so Netflix, a couple of years ago, they brought out a She-Ra TV series, right? Now, this, this is all based on stuff that I've heard before I've watched uh, the series, right? The mm-hmm. new Kevin Smith, uh, Kevin Smith, that Kevin Smith, um, Masters of the Universe Revelation, right? And so they had a She-Ra series that was kind of like, quite a very stylistic it looked very sort of it looked like it was aimed at younger children hmm. but i think that actually is the look in it of, of what a lot of cartoons look like now you don't really get I, I, that kind of it was, action uh, kind of comic booky looking um uh action sort who, of series anymore who did samurai jack and uh, gendy tartakovsky Yes, so I think he's got a very stylized look, and I think that's sort of mm. what Shiwa was sort of like based around. Mm. Um, so I know I didn't watch the Shiwa thing. I'm not interested in Master of the Universe. I'm forty, right? Mm. Um, but I am interested in sort of like this sort of like uh, fan backlash. And so, so Shiwa came out fine, and then they're like, "We're doing Master of the Universe." Kevin Smith is doing Master of the Universe, and Kevin Smith has sort of like said, uh, "Oh, it's about." you know, He-Man. And then there was like a a leak uh, on a website uh, called, I think, um, Clownfish TV. And um, they said about a year ago, we've heard that He-Man basically steps aside and Tila, who is uh, uh, He-Man's friend and sidekick, female from the original TV series, 
she was, I think she was one of the five, the first five action figures to get released. Yes. And if not, she was part of the next five. Um, and she was Man at Arms' daughter. She's a big part of the first series. And they said, right, what well, we have heard is that uh, He-Man isn't in the series so much and that um, uh, Tila becomes like the main um, character. And Kevin Smith was like, oh, well, we could have done with your suggestions while we were writing it. Um, but the whole series is literally about He-Man. <laughs> and um, now it's been released. And uh, spoilers, uh, He-Man dies in the first episode. And um, Tila is angry with him because she didn't know that he was Prince Adam as well. And... Uh, the whole series is about the adventures of Tila, right? Um, and that's what I had heard. And everyone's kicking off. And everyone's like, oh, God, you've done it again. <laughs> oh, well, Hollywood, you've made another thing about my childhood. And you've uh, demasculated the main character and all of this, this, and this. Um, and Kevin Smith was like, going, oh, well, uh, fans, uh, fans are just horrible and then they doctored the rotten tomatoes i think the the, the professional critics gave it sort of like something like 95 percent on rotten tomatoes whereas the fans had reviewed it at 25 percent uh and then they froze the reviews for the fans and then it crept up to 28 percent 30 percent 35 percent and so there's been some doctoring with the numbers and stuff like that apparently this is what all of the thing is and uh, now everyone's angry with Kevin Smith. They all hate Kevin Smith because he lied to the fans and he said that the whole series was about He-Man. And uh, everyone is like in outrage that they've made uh, He-Man really woke and Master of the Universe really woke. Uh, and I think they're using the term woke as a negative. Um, uh, and it's just sort of like this really uh, toxic sort of thing where Kevin Smith has sort of lied to uh, all <laughs> of the fans and uh said that it's he-man is back yeah. and then all the fans have tuned in to watch it and they've realized that he-man isn't back but now it's about tila and it's kind of like i think that the whole thing is such a clusterfuck i haven't watched it at this point right i've i have watched it <laughs> since but while i'm making up my mind about it and i'm reading all this stuff i'm finding it fascinating because kevin smith's entire career is based around his fans right it's based yeah. around the fact that he doesn't really make films for the cinema anymore he makes films so that he can take it in person, cinema by cinema around the country, charge a hundred dollars per ticket, and then he'll do a Q and A afterwards. Hmm. So he's like door to door sales with his films. Now. Yeah. Um, and so Kevin Smith is all about fan bait, and his whole career is based on the fact that he is a fan. He's one of the fans. He's making stuff for the fans, and now he's gone all corporate with Netflix, and he's made Master of the Universe really woke, and he's killed off He-Man, and everyone's really upset about it. I haven't seen the show yet. This is <laughs> what I have heard. These aren't my opinions. I'm just reporting, right? Um, and a part of me is just thinking, who's this fucking series for? Right? No one gives a fuck about Massive Universe except for 45-year-old men who were three-year-old to six-year-old boys who were play who were playing with toys that were marketed at them yeah. by a boy TV. It was a boys' cartoon series that was aimed at <laughs> boys that had a toy line for boys. And we know this because there was a female, there was a girl side uh, 
project called uh, She-Ra, the Princess of Power. And, um, uh, and and so there was the girls thing and the boys thing. So, so they've all grown up. They haven't had a He-Man thing uh, since the 1987 film, which was a pile <laughs> of shit, right? And these various kind of like reboots that haven't worked out. So people, you've got these 45-year-old, 50-year-old men that have been desperate for He-Man content for the last 35 years. <laughs> they finally got it. And He-Man gets killed off in the first episode. It's just like, well, who is tuning in to watch the T-La show uh, based on the fact that they haven't grown up? It's just like this crazy thing where you go, who have you marked? Who's the show for? Because you've told everyone that it's a He-Man show and then He-Man's not in it. And now, so the people that have tuned in for He-Man are upset. But then who's your, who's your audience? Yeah. It's not the Masters of the Universe fans because you've already done a She-Ra show. Yeah. So, so it's like, well, so I don't understand. Why have you, like, I don't understand like the whole thought process. And then, um, and then I watched it um, because I knew that we were going to be talking about it. Uh, well, I knew that we were going to be talking today and we got to film the show somehow. <laughs> and um, it's great. Okay. <laughs> I thought, I thought it was brilliant. I thought the first episode. <laughs> the, the, I I don't think it's perfect. I think right. that it it does actually. I think not having He Man in it um, does actually make some of the stories a bit boring. Um, but it's five twenty five minute episodes, right? And it, it's it's destroyed Kevin Smith's career on five twenty five episodes, <laughs> right? And um, uh, but it's like um they sort out the problem where Prince Adam is a skinny little guy and then when he holds up the sword, he turns into He-Man. So they sort that out. That's great. Um, you've got Mark Hamill in it as Skeletor, which feels like a bit of fan service because he's, yeah, he's the, know, Joker, the Joker and he's Luke Skywalker. So it's kind of like, okay. but And, it, and he sounds like Mark Hamill. He sounds like the Joker. So you're watching it like that and you're going, okay. But... Um, uh, he-Man is in every episode where there's a flashback every week and Tila remembers her friendship. And it's sort of like about her journey to forgive He-Man and to kind of like go, she was lied to her whole life. And so you kind of like, she's sort of like this samurai that rejects uh, Eternia and goes on uh, an adventure by herself. Yeah. Like um, like one of them episodic, episodic TV series like Kung Fu or The A-Team. And every right. week that she goes on like a new adventure, she has a flashback to He-Man. She remembers a fight with Skeletor. And it's about her journey to sort of like um, uh, forgive him. And it's kind of like, it's a direct sequel to the 80s cartoon series. It's not a reboot. It's a direct sequel, direct continuation. Um, I think that Orko is a really great character. Um, <laughs> I found, I found, I haven't watched the fifth episode yet but I found everything that they did with it was just really interesting. And I think that obviously if this is a success, they could pick another character, another master of the universe and follow that character for five episodes. I think, um, I don't think they've done enough with Tila to really make her kind of like a likable character, but I think that everything around her is a likable TV show. And I think it's an interesting TV show. I don't think they destroyed He-Man. And I think that 
um although the character is dead they talk about him in every episode so i think when kevin smith said the whole series is literally all about he-man you know yeah it is but that's a white lie isn't it because you know you've killed him in the first episode um so you know that he's not in it so it's not that do you know what i mean you're not giving people what they've wanted yeah and also i think that's damage control right though because if someone says we've heard a rumor kevin smith that this is what it's about there must be a bit in your head going oh shit that has leaked so he yeah, has to I say something, it's... doesn't he? He can't go, yeah, it is, yeah, yeah. It's meant to be a surprise. I think, I think it's it is damage control, but it's also, yeah, exactly. It's more like, well, it's like what happened with Terminator um, Salvation, where, mm. the, um, where the big twist at the end was that um, John Connor dies and he gets turned into a Terminator. And then that got released. And they said, no, that's not happening. And then when you watch the film, the whole film is leading up to this twist that, doesn't happen because they reshot the end so that they go nah see it didn't happen you go yeah but the ending that you've got is less interesting yeah than the ending that you had yeah and that's fat that's because the fans got involved and and yeah. kicked off and changed the ending and the film isn't as good because they listened and this master of the universe thing you kind of like go i think there's obviously like a lot a, lo a long game at play where mm. the people that are making the two, like Kevin Smith said, there's no way that Mattel are going to let me kill off He-Man. And that is true. And do you know what I mean? They're going to bring him back. They're going to do something. It's yeah. the long game. And people are kicking off halfway through a series yeah. because this is the first five episodes and then part two is coming later on. They're yeah. going to bring him back. This is In just the 90s, they did, a, they did a reboot sequel to He-Man. So it's not as if like, so now for that, for this to exist, you've already got to go, well, that one didn't exist. So they can have Kevin Smith's one and they can have a different version of it in two years' time, yeah, can't they? Absolutely, absolutely. But also, it's on Netflix. This whole thing is so ignorable. Do you know mm. what I mean? It's like you can just like go, it didn't happen, mm. if you want. Yeah. Or you could go back and you could watch the original cartoons. But good luck with that, because they were designed <laughs> to sell toys to four-year-olds. The original cartoons... <laughs> We all love them in our memories, but the original <laughs> cartoons are shit. They are shit. And what we've got now is we've got something that's really incredible. And rather than be a 45-year-old misogynistic, miserable cunt in your fucking, you know, why don't you watch this stuff with your kids and have a conversation? You know, there are these new characters or there are new takes on these old characters that are really interesting and it's complicated and it's just kind of like this is a this is a positive opportunity to, for people to have conversations yeah. with their their families that, rather than I don't know I just think the whole thing is so I think Kevin Smith's been a bit out of order yeah. I think the whole concept is maybe a little bit um, I know I think that maybe people would feel differently if they hadn't felt that they'd already done that with. Uh, James Bond, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Batman, <laughs> Terminator, like all of these franchises sure. where they've kind of like been um, reshuffled. Yeah. Um, I think people would feel differently if it was, oh, I think there's a little bit of, oh, now He-Man, mm. as opposed to just judging it based on its own sure. things. And I'm sure so there's a much more creative way to, to achieve that rather than just go, it's now about her. You know, I'm oh, sure you can absolutely do that if you wanted to. I, do, do you know what? The, essentially, the show is now it's about Tila, right? Essentially, when you boil it right down. But when you actually watch it, it's it's much more complicated than that. And it's right. not like it's not like He-Man shit. And now I'm even better. That is a very complicated story about mm. what is a world without He-Man. Mm. You know, 
and they discuss all of that and you just go this is fucking complicated it's more than a toy line it's more than an advert there's actually some drama in there i tell you something i've always amused me about the start of the old he-man cartoon is that it starts off and there's prince adam talking to camera so you go right who's prince adam talking to and he's like, it's talking to you the audience you go right so he goes oh, i'm adam prince fraternia but every time I hold my sword aloft and say, uh, um, power of grace girl, I become He-Man. And then it's like, you get the music going. And then he does a thing where he turns into He-Man, still looking at the camera and punches the screen. And I always like that idea that he just goes up to someone in the street. <laughs> he goes, all right, I'm Adam, Prince Turner. You go, hello, Adam, how you doing? He goes, well, you know, every time I hold my sword aloft, uh, say, uh, by the power of grace girl, I become He-Man. He goes, oh yeah. Let's do it now. And then he's like, great. And then he just goes smack. It's like he's punching you. He's punching the viewer. Yeah. yeah. It's good. It's good. It's, uh, it's, um, uh, yeah. I, I recommend it. I thought I, there's none. I thought it was great. I thought it was really great. I loved it. Um, well, I, I didn't love it, but I thought it was great. You thought it was well done. I think it's done as well. I think it's done. I think it's done well. It's interesting. There's a purpose for it to exist now, rather than just yeah. just nostalgia. And I think that, um, I think that you need to just. I think people. Oh, I don't know. It's just so complicated. I feel like with every every sentence, I'm. Um, I'm getting into choppier waters that I don't really. No, I think there's a there's a there's a space for it, isn't there? I think it's and it's and at the end it should boil down to, is it any good or not? Um, let's do some it, fan I mail. I think it's all right, but it's a little bit boring in places. But then there you go. All right, fan mail. Hi, Nick and Nat. How are you doing, boys? I recently watched the new Disney film, Luca, and I loved it. Have you watched it? Many people think it's the first Disney film that portrays the LGBTQ plus couple. Uh, I don't know about that. That would make it even cooler, though. What do you think, Holly? As always uh, with these uh, letters, I haven't seen the film. I've heard this, I though, and I think it kind of, from what I've heard, it kind of makes sense that's what it would be. But I guess it isn't done overtly, so I guess it isn't it's still not confident enough to do that from what I've heard. But again, I'm basing it on nothing I haven't heard. I think they should just do it. Just do it then. Just do, just it. do it. Because they were like saying uh, LeFou in um, Beauty and the Beast was yes. the first uh, gay ca- character in uh, any Disney film. And he wasn't really. They just basically marketed him as gay. And then when you watched it, there's very little evidence in the film that he's gay. Mm. And then there was the... Um, uh, two women kissing at the end of Star Wars, uh, mm. but they did it in a they did it in a th- and they removed that shot. It was one shot for maybe a split second on screen, and they removed it when they released it in China. And mm. it's kind of like, I think you should just do it and then see what happens. Yeah, deal with the consequences. You can't do it and then pretend it has now. Because because I think if you if you put in an LGBTQ plus couple in a Disney film. And it was a huge roaring success. Then you could say you've done it, and then you can make more. You know, there'll be bigots out there that don't agree with it or don't or don't want that sort of thing. Fine, right? But if you give people the opportunity uh, to to um, to watch themselves be represented on screen, um, 
or even if it's not direct representation, you know, uh, if you just tell a good story, um, if you give people that opportunity, they might not disappoint you, you know? Mm. And I think Disney should just do it instead of doing what they are doing, which is like going, well, we kind of really want gay people to still come to Disneyland. Mm. So maybe if we kind of cover all of our bases in a, in a kind of, you know, the other thing that uh, going back to Massive Universe, they were like saying Tila's um, gay now, and you know, oh that's interesting. Uh, but but they were like saying, well, it, it's uh, in in words only, in name only, because she doesn't actually have like um, like a physical relationship with another woman, even though it's sort right. of a little bit implied. And you go and you go, fine, okay. There's a bit of a grey area where they're kind of like implying that she's gay without making her gay right and there's no sort of like uh lesbian kiss or anything like that it's just kind of fine but then when you actually watch the film there's no heterosexual kissing there's no mm. boyfriends and go there's maybe a king and a queen of eternia yeah who are a couple but it's not like everyone's walking around going like this is my female wife <laughs> and this is my male husband do you know what i mean and so it's kind of like it's kind of like um What's the rest of the actual product doing? Yes. You know? um, Beauty and the Beast is a love story about uh, a, a male and a female. And so to put a gay character in there, you maybe need to show that there's another gay character sure. that they're interested in. Sure. You know? And surely, um, if anything, it's about uh, a bestiality relationship. So it's actually really pushing some boundaries. Well, yeah. Maybe they had enough on their plate. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, we're, we're too worried about working out how we're going to get this woman to fuck a bear. Uh, <laughs> uh, we'll say he's gay, uh, and maybe you know that's how bigoted people are. That's how bigoted people are. They were so they were so upset with the fact that there was a guy that was implied to be gay that they completely missed out on the fact that there was uh, the main character. Wanted to fucking bone a lion. But there you go. Half lion, half bear, half boar. Three three halves. One half. <laughs> One half. Hello. Hello, Nick and Nat. Hello, Nick and Nat. I'm a listener from Romania. And as a good fan, uh, fan, I'm definitely telling my friends about your great show. You guys are so much fun. Nick, I might be mistaken, but I've noticed that you haven't talked about John Carpenter for a while. I think you've just not known. Uh, I've definitely <laughs> mentioned him last week. Right? What's up? Why? I am a big fan of his. Well, it's the trouble about talking about John Carpenter every week is he rarely brings out new content. <laughs> you have to really, like, go for it. Uh, I talked about him because I talked about... Uh, yeah, lost, it's the Lost, lost Themes. Lost Themes 3. Um What's up? Why? I'm a big fan. Do you know that he's got a new film out in October? I didn't know. That. I didn't know that. I bet it's going to be a must watch. I bet it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I'm worried. I'm worried. As someone who's now this week completed all the Brian De Palma films, I'm a bit worried about when people do it. And come to Romania. Uh, as that. And I'd love to come to Romania. I don't know how they're doing in the. Uh, the charts out there, what the demand would be. Though this week we did find out that in Brazil, and the Apple Podcast Comedy Charts, we are one six nine in Brazil, one two one in Singapore, and one oh nine in Denmark. In Denmark, yeah, that's great. Um, is our guest in the in the room? Um, 
One more bit of fan mail real quick. Um, yeah. Hello, I'm uh, I'm fairly new listener to your show, but have come to quite enjoy it. <laughs> fuck yourself. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to say, but uh, you can go and fuck yourself. <laughs> I am bored and need a new hobby, and you said you wanted listeners to ask you questions, so if you had to... And you can't say no. Drink a half a pint of blood, piss, or snot. Which would you go back? Cheers. In anticipation. Declan, your, your mum. Oh, I see. I see who you are, Declan. What does, what does Declan, your mum, mean? Uh, um, I think he's... Um, Is his name actually your mum? No, I think he's trying to, to get a rise, and he's trying to get a rise out of us. Well, I mean, it's obvious. I would drink a pint of snot. What about you? Uh, it depends whether it be my own or not, but I reckon probably snot. I imagine I probably uh, drink a pint of snot every week or something just by uh, existing. Um, so, oh, by that standard, then uh, it would be piss and blood for me. <laughs> uh, uh, can I have a can I have a tequila sunrise as I like to call them? Um, <laughs> my first piss of the day. Uh, I piss into a pint glass. Uh, let all the blood settle to the bottom, and then I gulp it down in three shots, followed by a snot chaser. Um, here we go. Right, look, uh, our guest is in the waiting room. Let's play a song and then bring her in. Yes. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we're back, we're back, we're back. We're back live. We're not live, we're pre-recorded. Uh, in the studio, we're not in the studio, I've been in my... Um, office and Nat is in his washroom and we're joined now by uh, writer, director, uh, musician and performer and now filmmaker uh, Laura Jean Marsh. Hello Laura, how are you doing? Hiya, I'm good thanks. Yeah, good to see you guys. Thanks for having me on. Uh, thank you for coming on. Um, we've just worked together, well I said we've just worked together, we worked together at the end of last year didn't we? We did, yeah. Uh, and I, I was in your film that you wrote and directed called Giddy Stratospheres, um, uh, along with you, who was in it. Yeah. Um, uh, and we've just been listening to your song, uh, Bruise Violet Babes in Toyland. Yeah, that's the one. It's not your song, it was your choice of song. It was, it, I know I gave you an annoyingly long list. I don't know if you saw it. But, um, we didn't I, even I, see the list. Natalie pruned, so, it, pruned it and just picked something I'm, she liked. Sorry, Natalie. On my list, I had Just Like Heaven, The Cure, Caught by the Fuzz, The Supergrass, a Bjork song, a Pixies song, uh, Babes in Toyland, which shows, a Radiohead song, a Yeah, Yeah, Yeah song. Cocteau twins and a blur song because I couldn't decide on one. Um, but I'm glad. <laughs> I, I think that's fine. I think it's a really um, unfair question is to say, what is your favorite anything? What is your favorite song? What your, I can't work out what my favorite food is or mm. anything. It changes all the time. Well, it depends on what you're doing as well, I think. But um, I, I did make a list for you, but um, I'm sorry about the list. But I'm glad no, we're going to Thank you very much. <laughs> Babes in Toyland, that tune is really violent and makes me go crazy, so it was a good choice. <laughs> well, Laura, all this ever is, Laura, is a, is an excuse to get us to talk about things, and we often think that by talking about what you like, we can spin off into lots of interesting areas just by oh. finding one thing you like. Yeah. 
right. That's what this. That's what the show is, right, Nick? That's what. That's our excuse when when we don't get onto talking about the the films. What 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 I would say is that people put a lot less thought into it than what you have done, and then when we say, "Oh, tell us about your favorite film," uh, they'll say, "Oh, it's good," and then we'll say, "Oh." And that's what happens when we. Tr- that's what happens when we end up going back to the format of the show. So it's just well, better. I, I, best, we'll just... I did have a little panic because I, I realised I hadn't seen a couple of them for a while, and I had to have a little a brush up. And I'm, I even wrote notes for you, like a proper keener, um, because <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't remember certain things, and I thought, "Oh shit, I'm gonna look like a right idiot." So never mind. No, no. Well, let's go into it. Well, let's go into it. Would you? What do you think, Matt? What should we do? Yeah, let's go into it now. We're talking about it. Let's talk about some of your favourite films, which you've got a huge list of. Or we've mm. got, but maybe this has been pruned, we've got The Shining, yes. Don't Look Now, yes. Lost Highway, yes. With Nail and I, yes. Hereditary, yes. Morven Calla, A Room for Romeo Brass, yes. Best in Show. Yeah, is that too many? How many people usually give you? There's no, there's no too many. There's no oh, too okay. many. I'm so that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I mean, you're too shy of top ten. That's annoying. Oh yeah. That's a top eight. <sighs> Who does a top eight? All right, I might give you a couple more then if you've got time. Let me think about it. We've got as much. To me. <laughs> we've got as much or as little time as you want. But the, well, that's not true. We've got an hour. Well, that's not. <laughs> we've got, got forty nine minutes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but tell us a little bit about um, Giddy Stratospheres and how that came about. Well, I um, I wrote it last year in a, when we first went into lockdown. So I was supposed to be actually filming my first feature film that I was I wrote and direct, was going to direct was a, a comedy uh, about two girls that accidentally kill somebody by poisoning them with a birthday cake, and um, that didn't end up happening because we went into lockdown. Uh, and I was released for my work one bit of exercise a day. Uh, and I went for a run in the park and I stuck on a playlist of noughties music uh, from, you know, sort of mid noughties and a particular music scene that I was a part of because I was in a band and run a club night and stuff. And just, you know, it really blew, blew me away, all these memories. And I decided to write Giddy Stratospheres uh, after kind of getting a bit emotional about that period of time in my life and strung together the script and... I wanted you to be my brother, and the rest is history, really. And here we are; it's finished, and it's being released everywhere, <laughs> which is mad. You, I never thought that had, would happen. <laughs> well, you had a premiere what two weeks ago, was it? Yeah, we missed you at that, mate. You missed Richard. Did a little intro. I was going to, I was going to try and force you to get up on stage with me and everything, but never mind. Do you know what I saw? Because I was, uh, I was coming back from my holiday on that day, I, um, mm. and there was a little moment where i thought oh do you know what i might be able to make this and then we got stuck in traffic and was like i have no i can't make oh, it out. no anyway, absolutely fine and you came to the rap so, party as well so you saw you saw it then I, I did come to the rap party but i saw photos of richard herring introducing uh saying something he had a microphone in his hand and he was standing on a stage and yeah. i was insanely jealous and i thought oh i would have i would have done as good if not a better <laughs> job than richard herring <laughs> Well, maybe uh, you, could, you could come to America when it goes to America, and I'll force you to do it then. <laughs> uh, it's a bit further than Clapham. Isn't it? Where was it? Was it? Was it Clapham? Was it? Clapham? You know, it was Dalston, Dalston, Rio. Um, Rio, yeah. that's right. Yeah, it's quite near where we shot most of those scenes, actually. 
but I didn't know that um, my name was on the poster either. So I saw all these pictures of people um, uh, uh, outside the cinema take it, having their photo taken outside the uh, poster of the film. And it was, I was like, oh, I'm on that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's, that's incredible. What was it like having, this was your first film, right? Yeah, I mean, I'd written and directed a few shorts and music videos and things. But yeah, this was my first feature film. So it's so quite it scary. Like? What's it like going to like a premiere at an actual cinema, especially after like all of the COVID and lockdown stuff that we've had where you're not even allowed out, you know, to go to the cinema, to go to the cinema for the first time to see your own film. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely shat myself, mate. Like I was, (laughs) I was shitting myself and I I would love to say I enjoyed it, but I was just a, a, yeah, I was I was just shaking the whole time. Felt a little bit better after I I did a speech, um, my speech after Richard introduced me, and but watching it on the screen was it was amazing, but it's also quite nerve wracking because a lot of the bands that are part of the soundtrack were there, lots of people that you know like my mum was there, and obviously she's in the like represented in the film. Uh, loads of old friends turned up and bought tickets I hadn't seen since that era, so I felt very like you know everyone was going to be judging me for representing this time that felt, you know, a lot of people feel like they own that time. Um, so, yeah, I was just shitting myself. But afterwards, I just was blown away because, I mean, I'm sure not everyone liked it, but a lot of people were quite emotional about it and came and gave me lots of love. So, yeah, it was a lot. I was exhausted the next day. I c- could barely move. But actually, you sent me a really nice message of support and I felt, you know, support from everyone. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah shot myself basically <laughs> and how did what was it because the films the film's a really lovely film Thank um you. i think that when i re- you know when i read the script i've said this in an interview that i did but like when i read the script i sort of i sort of knew where the plot was going and then it surprised me and it mm. didn't go the way i thought it was going to go mm. and that's why i agreed to do it was because I, I you know when i read it i was just like oh this is this has sort of exceeded my expectations and it has surprised me mm. and I like that element of it and so I went to see it but it's like a really nice mixture of sort of like drama and this comedy and it's funny and it's sad and mm. um it sort of does a lot of things so it's quite ambitious for like a first feature um yeah how did how did it go in the how did it go in the room or like on the night uh what do you mean? How did it well, go? Did they, did they laugh where you were expecting them to oh, laugh? Yeah, I mean, of? absolutely. That was something that was really weird is that because I see it so much as a drama and I know that I, you know, I wrote funny elements in, but I didn't expect everyone to laugh as much as they did. Um, and you did get the biggest laughs, by the way, just so you know. Um, but it, it was of like, <laughs> of course, um, but it was, yeah, everyone was laughing in the right places. Uh, lots of people crying at the end and, I wasn't expecting um, the response, to be honest. I thought people were going to be a little bit more, uh, I don't know. I just didn't, I didn't expect people to react, react the way they did. But yeah, there was lots of laughing. Um, and yeah, it was great to hear. There's nothing nicer than hearing a whole room laughing at jokes you've written. <laughs> so, yeah. I thought it was interesting so, what you were saying about the, um, you already had a film ready to go before it. Yeah. Uh, what was that film then and what? And is that still likely to happen then in the future? So it's, it was called Dave's Dead. Um, and it was just pure farcical, silly comedy about these two girls who accidentally kill one of their boyfriends with a birthday cake. And they are trying to get rid of the body 
in a house and it's just lots of silliness and lots of different people coming in and out pizza guy getting locked in a toilet and that hurt them accidentally killing him I've just given the whole storyline away so I can't do it now (laughs) (laughs) but um uh it just felt a little bit um not saccharine but I just thought after Covid everything feels a bit different I don't think people would find it you know I just thought I just ditched it I was like this is just life is different now Mm. and things that if it's uh, lightweight what do you mean yeah lightweight and just silly and I, I wasn't feeling I was feeling a lot more reflective uh and a little bit darker and I wanted to kind of uh reach into the dark depths of my imagination for for creating something a little bit grittier I think the way I felt after being locked away for a couple of weeks in lockdown I didn't want to do that movie anymore <laughs> wanted to do mm. this one so I did <laughs> that's weird I had sort of like the off- opposite the opposite reactions uh, I was on I was on halfway through a tour and my tour was really sort of like um my show was really not dark but it was really honest and truthful mm. and open and it was about depression and stuff like that and then as soon as mm. lockdown happened I was just thinking I don't want to do that anymore I want to do something that's really light and mm. frivolous and sort of not disposable but lightweight I want to do something that's fun so yeah I guess that we all had different reactions to different lockdown. reactions yeah mm. no I, I felt quite quite the opposite actually I wish I felt the way you did <laughs> but <laughs> I just was like, I don't know if, I don't know, this isn't a comment on your film, this is a comment on my stand-up. And I was just mm. like, I don't think me going on after a global pandemic and talking mm. about my personal depression is the, is, is the answer for what I think my audience wants. And what I want to do is go back and do like a, like a, another thing. But that's, that's different. What I thought was great about the film, and I was in it, so I'm not going to, but like, what I thought, was great about the film was that I remember that era. Mm. I lived in Bright- I lived in Brighton in two thousand and five, and I yeah. remember kind of like being at parties, and um, still being up and at a party while the sun was coming up and mm. the walls were sweaty. And yeah, uh, and I've seen lots of films that sort of depict that sort of thing. I thought, and I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass. I thought. When I went to the screening, I thought this really does capture uh, the grabbiness and mm-hmm. um, uh, and and not wanting to see the dawn yet, and mm. uh, all of those things that come from those parties that I went to. And maybe it's because I was that age when the uh, film is set, but it also mm. really felt like it captured that mid two thousands kind of mm. era really well. Um, and 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 because it was a really low budget film, yeah, tiny baby. So, so, so I think you managed to achieve something in your low budget film that mm. large budgets haven't really necessarily conveyed. You know, oh, that's nice, mate. Thanks. Um, well, I mean, I, I was there and I did a lot of that sort of three day bender stuff, and um, that was very much like the side of this this particular music scene that I wanted to sort of put across. Um, a couple of other interviews I've done, uh, people have brought up that they're, they're, why didn't I want to sort of do the celebration of indie, this indie music scene and make it like, you know, really light and fun and try and put it but across that way. And I could have done, I could have done like a, everyone went to Coco and watched Franz Ferdinand and High Five and went home. <laughs> but it wouldn't have been the film that I would, that's not the film I wanted to make. I wanted to show the darker side. And, I, you know, sadly, I, 
I had a few heartbreaks back then and you know people pushed it too far so I thought that you know that was my truth and that was what I wanted to put across and uh yeah I'm glad that I, that it it worked um but I did I would I wouldn't have been able to uh, live with myself if I didn't kind of execute those scenes accurately I think and the the characters are all based on people that I used to know as well <laughs> so that was quite fun um kind of getting people in the mindset of those those dark sort of corners of the after party hmm. it's the dark corners of the after party but there's also the people out staying there welcome talking shit yeah. way too late and way yeah. too long uh josh what was josh's role on the production so josh played jasper but he also was my assistant director and he's that's right. my best mate as well in, in real life so that, so was... he, that five o'clock in the morning six o'clock in the morning talking shit on yeah. drugs i i mean i've met people like that exactly i thought yeah. josh did a really good job in it oh he nails it and that's why we kept the um uh the, the bloopers in at the end because I thought Josh we did we could have used a lot more of Josh in the film but we we, we couldn't really fit it in those moments would have been too long so we stuck yeah. we, we like we did leave them in at the end because he absolutely nails that like narcissistic lead singer mm -hmm. of a band that won't shut up <laughs> and just wants everyone to, to listen to him and is completely blissfully unaware of everything else going on and had too much gack yeah he nailed it so what extent is it autobiographical or not well, I mean, it's tricky. I don't. There, there's quite a lot of it, which is is very accurate to to sort of some heavy moments from my past. Um, just for sort of, I would say a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's tricky. I don't want to kind of throw anyone else under the bus. Spoil you know the film. I mean? And I don't want to. Yeah, and I don't want to spoil the film. But yeah, it's it's one of the reasons this has been quite an exhausting process is because of actually a lot of that stuff I've never really come clean about. So it's um it's it's more nerve wracking because of that reason. But yeah, it's it's very much um my truth for sure. I mean, there's certain things that are really exaggerated character wise, mm. but it's my my view of certain moments in my life. And yeah, it's pretty it's pretty autobiographical, but you know, in a cartoon way. <laughs> right. Um, and you said, like, when, when we're talking about pivoting from one film that you had written to this one, what is what was the process of getting this made then? Was it that you just went, well, all this kind of money, was it as simple as that? You were able to roll it over onto this project? No, not at all. Right. I mean, me and Beth, um, Beth so Bethany uh, was my producer, but she's also plays Bella. <laughs> So everybody was, who was in the crew was doing something in the film as well. Um, and Beth and Beth's sister's a producer, but she'd never, Beth had never produced anything before. So when I finished the script, I just said to her, do you fancy helping me trying to get this thing off the ground? Like, I know you've never done it before, but you know, she's my best mate. And um, I'm sure Nick will agree. She's a sweetheart. Um, and really, uh, really I, I like... just gave the thumbs up then. <laughs> I just, but we're, we're doing we're doing radio, but yeah, yeah, she's great. <laughs> she's great, and also she's just like no nonsense northerner. Do you know what I mean? So she was just really practical, and we we just managed to to like I approached a few people about the budget stuff. Like, do you want to put some money towards this film? This is what it's about. Blah 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 blah. And we we kind of made it up as we went along. To be honest, it was a lot of scraping together pennies uh, as we went along. Um, 
and we didn't because we both because she loved the script as well we just felt quite passionate about it and it just sort of snowballed from there so I needed to get uh permission from the long blondes who wrote the song Giddy Stratospheres um who I used to know years ago but hadn't spoken to a few years and they gave me their blessing and so I could use the, that title and then after that it was you know approaching other bands as well because I needed that soundtrack to be really authentic um and I was so I hate saying blessed what am I going to say I was really chuffed <laughs> that they all let me use <laughs> blessed they all is let better me... than chuffed <laughs> <laughs> blessed and chuffed that um loads, <laughs> loads of uh Loads of bands from the time that would usually charge a lot of money to, to let people use their tunes, let me use them for a lot less because I, they were just supportive of the cause. So it was putting together all those little pieces to, to make it work and making it up as we went along. I mean, we were constantly like at one point I was doing all the contracts, all the accounting, all the law, like I was a lawyer, I was an accountant. I was doing some <laughs> shit with numbers and just, you know, making it happen. Um, so no, it wasn't. It, it it was a making up as you go along kind of thing. <laughs> to mm. be honest, that was going to be one of my questions, really, just about because it felt like if it's a low budget movie, how did you get this soundtrack? But you've kind of answered it already. Yeah. It just feels like well, it seems like it it must have cost a fortune. But no, I guess... no, I, I mean I won't give figures away. But it's no, you sure. know I'm, I'm forever grateful to to certain bands that would usually not license that those songs for like less than I'm sure tens and tens of thousands or some of them right. even more. But like you know they just so the fact that I think I was there for that era and because the storyline they all liked the plot and everything to do with it and uh, they supported the cause and they wanted to be I think as well because they all know like a lot of those bands all know each other so I don't think anyone wanted to be the dick <laughs> right. no. did you did you know because you were in a band uh, screaming ballerinas so did you know them yeah. from that uh, yeah from that and also running and I, I ran a kind of indie rock club night so I used to put on those kind of five band bills of, of bands when they were just starting out so you know a lot of those bands I had on before they got big so they kind of either, either remembered me from that or pretended to, or remembered me from my band. But my band were, I mean, by no means anywhere near as big as those guys, because um, we we kind of, we were quite, we did okay in Italy, but nobody would sign us over here. So it was hardly like, uh, we supported some of those bands, but it was a, it was, I was a teenager and, you know, we tried our best, but we couldn't quite get it off the ground. I'm sort of, I'm, I'm 42, so I feel like I'm sort of a little bit too old for that, but... When I was trying to put it in the context, I was going, was this this era of MySpace? Was it very much that time? Oh, yeah. Big time MySpace. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that was and, MySpace was a real thing. And it felt like when when I heard it, it's like, oh, well, what's, what, what is that? What is that music? I was trying to think like what. But then it almost starts with the rap by the Walkman, which feels like one of those like, oh, well, that's brilliant. I mean, that yeah. really has stood the test of time in a way that I think it's slightly better that mm. it even gets credit for. I think oh my God. that's it's an absent. I should have put that on my never-ending list of songs, but because <laughs> <laughs> it is, I didn't, I didn't really want to, because I feel like I've just been talking about the noughties so much recently. I wanted to go a bit more like off-piste. Um, yeah, the rat is amazing, and and, I, and like I think that that song for me and a lot of people from that time just completely encapsulates that feeling of like pure, pure euphoria of that that those opening guitar. Uh, chords and just it's such a it's such a it's it's a venomous song but it fills me personally with just such joy because it's that mm. real like hands in the air squished in a crowd watching that band when that song came on was always just like 
maybe some of the happiest times I've ever had watching that band when they came into town. So we have that as the, I'm sure it doesn't matter if I say this, it's it, the opening song to, to the film when Lara and Daniel are running. And it, it always reminds me of that. Like before I wrote this, just running to that song is just the best. So, Give us a rundown of some of the, the, uh, the bands who are on the soundtrack then. So it gives people an idea of what era specifically we're talking about. So we've got Franz Ferdinand, we've got uh, we've got The Cribs, we've got Blackwire, we've got The Rocks, we've got Art Brute, we've got The Future Heads, we've got La Tigra, we've got The Rapture. Uh, I tried to get the yeah, yeah, yeahs, and I even wrote them a very sloppy letter um, and that they never licensed any of their music. <laughs> so <laughs> that was the, the only heartbreak I had. Was that, that, Did they go back to you? Song. Yeah, they were really sweet. It's just that they just have this policy. They just don't let anyone use their music for anything. So it's precious to them. But I, I, I really did go for the jugular. I tried so hard. It was the it was the scene, uh, Nick, where um, you, I won't say what happens in it, but where you swig the, the bottle at the bar, that heavy scene. I really oh, wanted, yeah, sir. I, I wanted maps for the AAS for that. And I wrote it to that song but that was the only heartbreak I had but the rest of them uh, we managed to get so that's great. Do you find, do you find that you do that then because I, I find that what I do is I go through uh, Spotify and I put together a playlist and then mm -hmm. I will listen to songs on repeat until I've written that scene because mm -hmm. that song encapsulates the emotion of that scene and so I'll think I'll listen to it over and over and then I'll sort of like move along. That's interesting that you do that. Do you, do you find now that when you listen to those songs again, it reminds you of writing that particular scene or no. does it? No, no, okay. no. I, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing something at the moment and I rewatched, um, I did a short called Killing Machine and I wrote all of that. It's very, I had the soundtrack. We were really lucky because I don't think, because uh, it was for BBC. So they mm. have all sorts of like licensing departments mm. and so we got all of the music that i wanted and we had like kiss and alice cooper and stuff in there and, awesome. um, and it was sort of and so i i was able to get the it wasn't like independent because it was part of the british broadcasting corporation so i just listened to all any song that i wanted and we basically got it mm. and um Amazing. and i watched it again yesterday but I watched it again yesterday and I was like, I don't remember using any of this. <laughs> <laughs> and I must have listened to each of those songs a hundred times when I did it. Yeah, that's um, so cool. Yeah, I, I did do the same. Yeah. Um, I actually have to, I have to just mention something I forgot to mention, but I did have help with the paperwork for Giddy, for the licensing from a guy called Phil Canning. And I have to mention him because I didn't. I, he managed to help me with the business side of it, getting all that licensing. Yeah. Um, I imagine you were chuffed to have him, weren't you? Oh my god, yeah, and he was an indie kid from the scene as well. So he he luckily he he, he did all that work for free. Usually, <laughs> well, he he works for Universal and would usually charge a lot of money, but he did it for free because he like again supported the cause. So that was good. Um, but yeah, I did write all that. Um, I, I wrote each scene to a specific song, so I really wanted mm. those songs. Like you you said, Nick, it's like a certain scenes I needed that so I was so adamant I needed certain so songs for those scenes and that's the only scene that I couldn't get the tune I wanted so I'm, I'm really mega lucky I feel mm -hmm. like lucky anyway and what's next what was it because I was watching it trying to think is this is it is this you making a first feature as in 
I want to direct more films? Or was it, were you thinking of it as a showcase for acting or both or? Uh, no, actually, I, I don't want to say this because I'll probably, it'll probably bite me on the arse, but I, I'm getting a little sick of acting. <laughs> so I, I just sort of like, I, I definitely wouldn't act in something that I've written and, and direct it as well again. I don't think I can, unless it's a little cameo or something, but I absolutely love directing and I love writing. And the next projects I have coming up are a series set in the 90s, which is based around Britpop. And uh, I've written a mockumentary that I keep banging on to Nick about <laughs> called Venom Falls, which is about a little weird town, uh, which is a bit Twin Peaksy actually. Um, it's a little... <laughs> Um, and yeah, those are my next two projects. And I've been directing music videos a lot recently as well, which is an absolute dream for me. I absolutely love it. So yeah, directing, writing's definitely the way I want to go. Well, I think we, we, we mentioned Twin Peaks Off Air. That was one of your choices for TV that often comes up on this show, but it's yeah. a show that you've never seen, Nick, right? I've never seen Twin Peaks. Oh, I know of no, I, I know of Twin Peaks. Right, so you've got um, Lost Highway in there as well, right? Yeah. I, I can't. Uh, I just, I can't get into David Lynch. You can't get into David Lynch. Fair I, enough. I can't do it. It's, is it because it's all just a bit too pretentious? Um, I don't think of it as pretentious. I feel like I'm not intelligent enough to. Um, to, I, so I've watched documentaries on David Lynch. Mm. Um, I like him as a person. Mm. Uh, I watched that. I watched that documentary that's on Sky Arts at the moment about him. Um, yeah, uh, I think he's fascinating. I uh, remember Twin Peaks uh, from the time in the nineties. Um, uh, I like Blue Velvet. Mm. Um, it's just, but but what did I? Was it Lost Highway that I saw, or was it? What's the other one that he did around yeah, the same I mean, time? So he did Drive. a Mulholland mm. Drive is, is the one that the kind of one that everyone is usually people's favorite but um I think just in general what I love about David Lynch because I adore him um I think I watch his his films and Twin Peaks almost like it's like a dreamlike experience um mm. rather than you know a sort of solid plot line where you've got to follow trying to work out what happened or whatever um but I just think yeah the, the dark sort of weird little worlds he creates just for me it's like the ultimate escapism mm. um lost highway um i think you know what i love about lost highway uh, we, we could talk about twin peaks but it'll probably i could talk about that forever but i think what, what i love about <laughs> what i love about lost highway is um there's one well a the, the soundtrack's amazing it's been put together by trent Reznor from nine inch nails so you've got mm. like you've got his tunes we've got a david bowie tune in there you've got um loads of uh uh what's he called Marilyn Manson like really heavy stuff and I, I think for me like what I love about David Lynch is like his he incorporates music in a way that I, I find quite inspiring into scenes and just mm. I like watching shit where I feel like I'm just completely lost in another world and and I think that you know if, if, if you don't try and work out what's going on it can just feel like quite a a dark dreamlike mm. nightmare it feels like you're watching a nightmare and I quite <laughs> I'm a weirdo enough that I quite enjoy that. But I like I like that. I mean, I like mm. the thing I like about Dario Argento films is mm. that they're like they're like watching nightmares, and it's interesting because you've got The Shining on your list as well. Um, yeah. So I'm just trying to work out which one I've seen. I saw 
with is uh is it there's rabbits in a kitchen there's people in land empire inland empire inland yeah. empire so and i was in land yeah. empire that's so, the baddest one. <laughs> right, okay. So I'm yeah. watching Inland Empire. And, and and what I would say, right, so I've got a very similar feeling about The Shining, but not quite. So mm. my thoughts on David Lynch are, I haven't given up on him. I really like him. Really yeah, like everything, yeah. And I will sit down and I will do the homework and mm. I'll watch something like Inland Empire. And I will get maybe... 20 minutes in half an hour in and i go oh yeah. god i'm i'm with it i i absolutely am am keeping up with this film and then something will happen and i'll be like oh what, what and the then fuck? i'll be like yeah. i get you well i think what you should do um what you should do is you should watch twin peaks because it's not it's it's funny and it's also like more of a traditional it's like a, it's almost like a sitcom you know there's so many silly characters and mm. it's not it's not it, i mean there are dreamlike moments really weird dreamlike moments but it's it's you are trying to work out who killed laura palmer and carl mclachlan's just pure magic yeah. um so yeah. i think I essentially doing. exactly i think laura's right and what you've done is you've gone in too hard i think you've gone in with the hard <laughs> yeah. stuff Oh my before God. you've before you've actually had the the kind of like I saw Twin Peaks when it was on, so I was probably about ten or eleven when I saw mm. it, and then Ouch. it was it was still like it was definitely disturbing and terrifying, but it was also like accessible, and it's and and you know when it starts, it's it's network TV in America, so it's not yeah it, it's strange and odd and unsettling, but it can never stray that far away from yeah. it's definitely his most accessible thing as well, I think yeah, and it's and funny. it's funny it's really funny like for the first scene when he's talking about the fish in the percolator and he's saying there's yeah. a fish in the percolator and it's like what you what? and it's just pure silliness and yeah, yeah. you're gonna do it call that. <laughs> I, no, look, I, I literally leant over. I leant over. I didn't even get up. And I've got a David Lynch box set next to me. It's only got three films in it. And uh, I've seen Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire. I've never seen The Elephant Man. Um, uh, yeah, I just, uh, yeah. But then, so one of your favourite films is The Shining, right? Now, I would say probably I can... my favourite. My favourite film ever is The Shining, I think. So I don't hate The Shining. And we did actually, we talked almost an hour about The Shining the other week. <laughs> Oh, we don't have um, to talk about it again, then. No, no, we can talk about it. <laughs> about it. Um, but all, all I'm saying about The Shining is it's a, I feel differently about The Shining from David Lynch, where David Lynch is, I will keep coming back to David Lynch, and I mm. don't hate David Lynch, and I want to like David Lynch, mm. and I want to understand the films. Whereas mm. The Shining, I will walk away from The Shining, and I will try and... Uh, and it doesn't make sense to me, and, mm. and I will solve a problem with the shining in my head and i'll go back mm. and watch it and i'll come mm. away from the shining and i'll be pissed off with it again yeah and i don't love the shining but i am obsessed with the shining yeah well i watched the shining talking about um uh watching things when you're too young like uh, you just said about twin peaks when you were eight um i watched so i found the video to, i spent a lot of time on my own when i was a little kid because my brothers were so much older than me <laughs> So I went and found a videotape and it said The Shining on it. And I was, think I was about eight as well. And I thought, that sounds fun. Um, and I stuck it on. No one, you know, no one babysitting me or whatever. And it absolutely <laughs> fucked me up. But I was so obsessed with it, even at that age, you know, just everything about it. Like the music, you know, that, that opening uh, shot of um, 
the aerial shot of the car just driving, winding down the ro mm. those rocky roads towards uh, the Overlook Hotel. And like, I mean, it's daft. I mean, Jack Nicholson is completely bananas in it. And, argue, you know, all the, there's lots of reasons why I can understand why people find it a bit much. But I just find, I think it's such a beautifully shot film. I went to see his exhibition and cried because I saw that there was this... Um, that they had they had the maze from the maze scene right, and i right, walked right. in and i just saw it there and i'd watched the film probably about a thousand times and i was just like like just a mess <laughs> i was crying i mean i've got ridiculous. i've got shiny cushions behind me i've got <gasps> the, the orange carpet and then i've got the green carpet from yeah. um, whatever room it is 237 and um but what i would say about that is i saw the shining when i was very young mm. and i've watched it at least once every two years, mm. and sometimes more than more than once a year. Yeah. And to the point that I only realised this year that Jack Nicholson's performance is mental. <laughs> like, it is so like, silly. It's I was so young. Film. I was so young when I saw it that I was just like, well, that's acting. And then when you get older, you're just like, well, not He's when you get older. 35 years later you see it and you're just like going, hang on a minute Jack Nicholson's performance is fucking terrible <laughs> I totally it agree works. I totally agree and I don't know if you've watched the, um, the making of but Kubrick is just winding him up the whole time trying to get him to be that silly and then being well, he horrible made him eat, he made him eat cheese sandwiches because Jack Nicholson hates cheese yeah. and he made him eat cheese sandwiches <laughs> in yeah. and, and, and he was so horrible to Shelley Duvall to get her yeah. into that state so, you know, the, I love Kubrick's films, but he is a bit of a bastard. But um, he also drove the, the people that wrote the soundtrack mad and everybody mad on that set. Um, but yeah. yeah, anyway, Jack Nicholson you know, is absolutely mental in it. But I love him so much. I do. I can't do you know help the it. Story? Do you know the story about the Steadicam operator on The Shining? No, tell, tell me. I, I need to know. Stan Kubrick had the Steadicam operator and, um, uh, and Steadicam used to... Uh, yank his arm when he was operating the camera and he it was really irritated the steadicam operator and standing here it would kind of like get involved and he was like yank the steadicam operator around and mm. uh, uh and be like no over here and over here and film that and whatever and so the standing so the camera guy he didn't know what how to deal with it yeah so but he was a steadicam operator on rocky right and he yeah. said he he circulated a rumor on set, which was, um, uh, oh, I was the steady cam operator on Rocky, and Sylvester Stallone used to manhandle me while I was filming, so I punched him out. Oh, amazing! <laughs> and it got back to Stanley Kubrick, and so Stanley Kubrick stopped. Stop doing it. Stop doing oh, it. What? <laughs> um, that is genius. Genius. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that geeky, geeky fact. I'm going to store that. I am obsessed with The Shining. I just don't like it. <laughs> I've seen it so many times. And I, every time I sit down to watch it, I'm like, maybe this time. Which is sort yeah. of different from David Lynch. Do you know what I mean? I think yeah, they're yeah. both enigmatic films mm. that don't necessarily make sense once you've taken them apart and put them back mm. together again. Like, yeah, I think I kind of find... Like weirdly, I find I find comfort in in dark things, and I think uh, The Shining for me again just feels like the like real escapism. Um, I also love Stephen King's writing. I mean, he didn't even like that film to be fair, but I do love like everything about the Overlook Hotel and just feeling like you're in this world. No one, I like the idea that nobody else is there; it's just them. 
so I, I used to watch it all the time when I was little and I found it really comforting <laughs> it's fucking weird but um but yeah no I I, I can appreciate what you're saying I just yeah I think that, I think you're right though but being being locked up in a deserted uh, hotel during yeah. a snowstorm sounds yeah. like my absolute ideal holiday same yeah it's With like no just, phone lines no it phone lines and, and nobody trying to you know you've got the perfect excuse not to talk to people or go anywhere because you can't <laughs> so, and you can explore yeah. it's great yeah. I think okay. it really gets across the boringness of looking after a building, though. And I keep thinking that the scene that I always think of when I think of The Shining is that bit of, um, what's he called, Scatman Carruthers uh, showing yeah. Shelley Duval where the freezers are. Yeah, And I just go, I love that it's like it's going into this detail about how yeah. how we store this food and, and all these food stores and things. All the different like boxes of different shit and he's like this is this yeah, yeah it's i love that shot as well i think that's a really beautiful shot as well the way it pans across and you can see all the different um alleys uh, the different aisles with different things it really um, adds to that boringness and that idea that there's now this huge kitchen which is just operating for three people i find yeah. all that stuff really kind of it's yeah. sort of too big everything's too big everything's i like all too big. that yeah it's brilliant yeah too big for them mm. did you see mm. uh did you see dr sleep I, well, the problem with Doctor Sleep I've got is that I love the book so much, and then I heard it wasn't very good, and I get very angry <laughs> about films when they when I love the books. So I, I didn't watch it. Is it good? Is it, is it no. good? Oh, good. I mean, I'm glad that <laughs> I, I'm glad it, I haven't missed out. Yeah, it's a weird film. It's not got a very good bad guy, and um, mm. uh, and it's sort of like it would be. I don't know if it didn't have anything to do with The Shining. Mm. It would feel like one of those um, lesser. What's that? Bag of Bones, starring Pierce Brosnan. I haven't uh, seen it's that. A, it's a Stephen King adaptation from like the early to mid two thousands. Ah, it okay. feels it feels like that. It feels mm. like if it didn't have Shining, and then they do the carpet turns up, and mm. they get um, uh, Henry Thomas from ET to be Jack Nicholson, and and then it's just like, oh. hang on a minute. It's just this weird thing where it's not because Stephen King didn't like the shining film mm. and he didn't write a sequel to the shining film mm. the film takes it upon itself to mm. be the book mm. the sequel to the book mm. and the sequel to the film I and mean, it's like it's trying to mm. do too many things too much, too much responsibility ignored, yeah i think if it had just been an adaptation of the book then um and, and ignored the movie the shining mm. movie then mm. it probably would have been okay would have been able to be its own thing yeah, I think um, what Kubrick was so good at uh, is being really cocky and really like, you know, he always had a very, he wasn't trying to please Stephen King at all. So the, I think The Shining's just totally his film, really, isn't it? Um, I don't know, have you read Pet Sematary? Uh, no, I've not read it. I've seen oh, both versions of it well, it's, and it's the sequel to the original. Yeah, yeah, same. <laughs> so so Pet, Pet is one of my favourite books ever. Like, and I, I've always thought that... that that storyline is just one of the creepiest, most brilliant storylines ever. The, the idea that you bury a, your dead child in a pet cemetery and it comes back to life. Like, it's just so sick. I love it so much. Um, but the I watched the the 
is it the 80s version of uh, the film mm. the other well, day? I think it was like, maybe it was 1990 or something yeah. Like that, yeah oh my god isn't it just hilarious like like the, the, some of the, some of the like it was it's brilliant and it's so shit it's brilliant and I, I really enjoyed well, you've it you've got the you've got like the flashback sequence with the sister that died mm. and that yeah. is absolutely hor- horrifying terrifying the makeup on it Oh. Yeah, just absolutely horrifying. And then you've also got the Ramon song, and yeah, uh, which is great. That is one of the best Ramon songs. I um, don't want to be buried in a cemetery. <laughs> but what's what's interesting is they've used it on every version of the film, haven't they? And they also use it in um, Frankenweenie, the uh, the Tim Burton oh, really? film. Yeah, it's, uh-huh. it's like the soundtrack to all of them, I think. Yeah, yeah. it's a really odd film, that, because, that, as you say, it's like it feels like a TV movie, mm. except it has this flashback, which feels yeah. like it's from a completely mm. different, much more terrifying film. Yeah, I mean, I love it, it's, it but there are there are bits which are really funny. Like, when the, they've obviously got this actual child, and they're trying to get it to stab, stab people, but they just have this fake plastic hand coming into shot, <laughs> and some somebody's clearly just holding this toddler while this plastic hand coming out. It just made, made me laugh. It's daft, but that yeah. Kids went on. That kid went on to be kind of like a superstar, didn't he? He was. Did that he? was nineteen eighty nine. He was in Kindergarten Cop as yeah. the kid oh. that says, "Girls have a uh, vagina yeah. and boys have a penis." Uh, other way around, and. Um, <laughs> He was in Mercury Rising, which was the Bruce Willis movie that Bruce Willis made where Bruce Willis teams up with a kid and it was like one of the worst films ever made. And then the next year, Bruce Willis said, I'm making another film with a kid. And everyone was like, oh, don't do that. It was, <laughs> And then it was The Sixth Sense and you go, oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was very, it was very much like uh, Keanu Reeves going, oh, I'm going to make another cyberpunk movie after Johnny. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> oh, it's The Matrix. It's all right. It's fine. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah, so that kid went on and did loads of stuff. Um, oh, yeah. All right. Uh, what else have we got here? We've got... Um, Too uh, many. Don't, don't Look Now? Yeah, so I could, I could put... Did I say... Did I give you Don't Look Now and uh, Rosemary's Baby? I didn't give you Rosemary's no, Baby. I didn't did put I? Rosemary's Baby. All right. Okay. Oh, God, you can I can't talk about you. anything. You can talk about anything <laughs> you want. We don't no, have to talk like, about this at all. I'm <laughs> insufferable with this, with this stuff. Um, okay. What? Which one was it? Sorry. Don't, uh, don't look now, but we can talk about it. Don't look What's... now. Okay, so don't, have you seen Don't Look Now, guys? Yeah, no. one yes. of my favourites, um, all-time favourites. Um, I visited I was... the writing desk of Daphne de Maurier last uh, two weeks ago and oh, wow. uh, had a really nice time. Yeah, it was great. Well, Don't, don't Look Now, I'd say, oh, God, I mean, it's another one that I watched when I was far too young and just stayed with me so like just the the energy and the, like the just the feeling of that film stayed with me for well forever and I, I find it really inspiring just because uh just the music the music's amazing I was listening to the soundtrack yesterday um through uh some amazing speakers and just like I, I find it so soothing because it's although it's obviously a really creepy film uh I just love I love that music it's incredible um but yeah the scenes that really stand out for me I, I don't know if you've noticed but on the DVD box they've got the the reveal on the back which is unforgivable Terrible. have you seen that no I haven't noticed that I who does the music it... is it Pino Dinaggio is it or is uh, it, do I think that because it's because it's a bit like those uh I was thinking Brian I was thinking I was thinking Pino Dinaggio, you know. It is, it is, yeah. 
Pino yeah. Danagio. Because he went on to do a, a lot of the um, <laughs> Brian De Palma movies. And oh, you can right. kind of feel like that that's obviously a big influence on his movies. And I, mm. I think that my favourite thing about Don't Look Now is that it's all built up. Everything is built up to that last moment. That last and moment. everything is so like, it's almost like you're in a trap. That's what it feels like. Oh, it's gosh. like a, you're, you're watching this film yeah. and it's you're just on rail tracks that's going to yeah. take you to the ending and there's no way out of it. Yeah, and it, and it's I sort did... of, you've got every choice to go, mm. like it's, it, you can't get off it. It's all and heading it, to that one bit. And it, feel, it feels like that in Venice anyway. I don't know if you've been, but it does feel like you're kind of trapped. And it's um it's 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 so beautifully put across in that film, and I think both their performances are amazing. I mean, talking about big acting, Donald Sutherland is also insanely over the top in that film, but it totally works. Like when it's he, got um, oh, it's got, got my favourite bit. Yeah, um, it's got my bit when he comes out of the toilet, and he says to Julie Christie. I'd give it five minutes. <laughs> and you go, you don't, you don't see that in yeah. you don't see that in movies. You don't see that in movies. Yeah, there's lots of their relationship is because they were actually a couple at that time. There's a lot mm. of that in that film, which is just they t- you totally buy it all. And they shag for real as well. I don't know if you if you knew that. That's a real shag they're doing there. <laughs> Is it really? Yeah. Wow. yeah I've, I've always heard that they say it isn't, but people feel like it is because it feels real. Well, I think they claimed it was. Okay. Um, yeah, but whether I don't know. But, yeah, I, I think that my favourite uh, moments in that film, which I find really inspiring, are when he first looks at that picture from the church and the blood pours mm. out into the church and then he goes out and you see... I mean, there's something so iconic about that red outfit. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, anyway, which is similar to that, like a Schindler's List kind of vibe, you know, where you just can't... I'll never get that red outfit out of my head. Mm. Um but yeah, it's just a bloody good film. So, what year was Don't Look Now? 74. 74. So, 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 Nathaniel, what year was Obsession? Obsession was like 1980, was it? No, I reckon it's before that. I reckon that's about 74, 75. Because isn't Obsession set in Venice? Is it? It might be, you know. There's, there's, a, there's a, he's, he, he, he meets an artist that is rest, restoring some artwork in a church and obsession is a Brian De Palma film that feels very much like don't look now as well. Mm, um, I've never seen it. Would I like it? Great. It's great. Obsession is great, but it's, um, 76. what is it? It's schlocky. It's kind of like very, um, highly, high, highly <laughs> schlocky. Yeah. Schlocky. schlocky schlock. It's like, lots. it's, it's sort of Hokey. like, uh, Broad, yeah, cheesy, it's cheesy, but it's sort of like right. um, mm. uh, in a way that um, Don't Look Now is kind of like you have proper actors doing proper acting, whereas mm. uh, Obsession is, yeah, that take will do. It won't get mm. in the way of the plot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, amazing. I'm going to check it out. I might watch it tonight, actually. Sure. Um, but yeah, I think... But Rosemary's Baby is similar. I know it's a bit, a bit daft, but I think that's be- be- a beautiful, horrible film as well. I've got um, Polish posters all over my flat of different, like, 70s horror films. It's, like, my thing. Um, but I haven't got that on my list, so I won't talk about Rosemary's Baby. You can um, talk about... Uh, but Kyle Gass, uh, who we had on a few weeks ago from Tenacious D, is a big fan of um, Rosemary's Baby. Um, 
good lad. And, and I, I, I have a bittersweet uh, relationship with it because uh, my, uh, lo the love of my life, William Castle, um, mm. produced it and wanted to direct it and Roman Polanski took it away from him. Oh! <gasps> Uh, and said, oh, I'm going to direct it, actually. It, it was the best choice, because yeah. we probably wouldn't be talking about... <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't be talking about Barry. it. <laughs> we wouldn't be talking about Rosemary's Baby if William Castle had directed it. Mm. Also, Polanski, we're not really allowed to like him anymore anyway, but I can't... I, I think that film... I just, I just love that film. I love everything about the, the neighbours, the neighbours, mm. the nosy, nosy neighbours that have a lot more to them than you think. Um, but that yeah. always feels like almost a companion piece to Don't Look Now. Yeah. That's like another one of those inevitable storylines where, mm. oh shit, we're, we're so late. We're nearly at the end. Oh, fucking hell, I've completely <laughs> lost track of time. Um, uh, right, okay. Well, Laura, um, uh, we have to uh, wind up really quickly and then we've got to oh. play a game, right? So, mm. Giddy Stratospheres, it's available uh, where? Uh, in the UK, it's out now uh, on Amazon, Sky, uh, iTunes, Google something, Microsoft TV, which I didn't even know existed, but it's on there. Then okay. in September, um, it's going to be released in the USA and worldwide, and we're going to be announcing where soon. Um, and you can okay. keep up to date with everything on all our social media stuff, um, which is just Giddy Stratospheres. It's easy to find us. We'll tell you everything there. Great. We've got a minute and a half to play better or worse. Nathaniel, you need to race through it. You're in charge. Uh, I don't Laura, even know. What, I hand you what? over. It's absolutely it's fine. fine. Just Laura, it. the game is better or worse, and you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before based on my opinions to score points. Right. Beginning with Scarlett Johansson. Is Sting better or worse than Scarlett Johansson, according to me? Worse. He is worse. Jimmy Nail, better or worse than Sting? Worse. Worse. Better. Bill Murray, better or worse than Jimmy Nail? For worse. Worse. <laughs> Who knows? Better. <laughs> Bill Nye, better or worse than Bill Murray? Better. Better. No, worse. Worse. Um, Kurt Russell, better or worse than Bill Nye? Better. Better. Danny Am I Dyer. to be answering a eunuch? <laughs> I don't know what the game is. <laughs> You're answering, Stop Laura. Over. Stop oh. overthinking it. Stop <laughs> overthinking it. <laughs> Danny Dyer, better or worse than Kurt Russell? Better. High cards. Worse, worse than Russell. I love Dyer's card. Sure, it could be a high yeah, card. Yeah. Danny Kurt DeVito, Russell. better or worse than Danny Dyer? Better. Better. Danny Boyle, better or worse than Danny DeVito? I've got it in for him at the moment, I'm going to say worse. Worse. Danny Minogue, better or worse than Danny Boyle? Better. Worse. Uh -oh. Kylie Minogue, better or worse than Danny Minogue? Better. Nick? Better. 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 So what's the score? What's the score? It's a five. five. Well, you got a five, which means that you're not as good as Dane Baptiste and Marina Sirtis with nine bads from Massive Wackage with eight. Jamie Adams, Carl Gas, Izzy City with six. Sarah Gibbs. Uh, oh, you're as good as Sarah Gibbs with five. You're bang last. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. It's a terrible result for you, Laura. Um, good right. luck with the film. Um, Thanks, Nick. Uh, Thank you. Um, Thank you for coming on. Uh, you're Lovely welcome chatting. on the show anytime in the future if you've got Aww. anything to promote. Um, uh, thank you for coming on. And thank you for having don't, me. Don't go anywhere, but um, we're saying goodbye now. Goodbye from me. Goodbye from Nathaniel. Goodbye. Bye, guys.
Bye. Look after each other and see you next week. Bye.